0: Well, I, I don't have a ton of memories of my, my grandpa, Grandpa Eugene, uh, also known as Bapa. He was a pretty good dude, but we didn't do a lot together. But what we did do together was we built model airplanes. And that's like the thing that I remember. It was super geeky, but I loved airplanes growing up. And so the one thing that he knew how to do with me in terms of the things I enjoyed was to build something with me. And so that was, that was awesome. I would have given anything to trade the model for an actual, like, P-51 Mustang, though, right? Like, any day, I would chuck that model in the trash for an actual joyride in an airplane. Um, and I, the, the whole model thing is interesting because it is really just... It's an imitation. It's a preview to a greater reality. Um, when I... I worked at Cedar Mill Bible Church for a long time, and uh, when I got there, they had just built their building. It's a great, big, very beautiful facility. They bought it debt free. It was a very pretty cool thing. Um, but when you go explore through the cavernous storage facilities within the building, um, there was this model—the architect model of the church, right? Of the church building. And I always thought it was really funny. Like, why did we keep the model for the thing? That's here. Like it just seemed weird to me. And so we would make jokes about that on staff. We'd be like, What is this? A church for ants? How would the people get into the building, you know? And so that was that was our joke. And eventually it ended up in the trash because we needed to actually use that space for something. And the reality is a model is obsolete if you have the reality. You don't need a model once you've built the thing that it's supposed to help you imagine. And so that kind of dynamic, the idea of a model and a reality that supersedes it, is really the conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples in this passage. So go ahead and and read with me Luke chapter 21, verse 5. And just so you know, uh, this is a long passage, and there's a lot going on, and hopefully it raises more questions for you than you knew there were questions to ask Uh, and we're not going to be able to even get into all of it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through the whole passage, and then at the end, we're going to tie it together in terms of what this actually means and why it's good news for us. So bear with me as we get into it. Look at uh, 21, verse 5. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, that is uh, Jesus, said, as for these things that you see, these things will... Uh, I'm sorry, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The ESV likes to make it as complicated as possible. Jesus is saying all the stones are going to fall down on the temple, okay? Um, And so they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you're not led astray for... Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, don't be afraid. For these things must first take place. But the end will not come at once. Okay, so they're at the temple. And everything that follows in this conversation is to be seen through the lens of the temple, which is the heart of Jerusalem. It's the heart of Judaism, and it forms the center of the universe for every first century Jew. It is literally what the world revolves around in their imagination, and their thinking about life and society and all things. And so the disciples are looking at the temple, and it's impressive, right? It's this great, big, beautiful, impressive thing. And so they're, they're noticing it. And they're talking about how it's adorned and all these kinds of things. And Jesus says, hey, guys, so, uh, you know, this is all going to come crashing down. There's going to be a day when it's all going to be destroyed. All right? So they have some questions. Whoa, like, when's that going to happen? And what are the signs that it's about to happen? All right? Maybe they're thinking, we want to get out of Dodge before it happens. All right? And so this is the question. Right? Jesus is saying, look, there's going to be some things that will precede the destruction of the temple. They'll, they'll clue you in that it's about to happen. But then, even after it's destroyed, that's not actually the end. It's actually just kind of a preview of the end. He says in verse 10, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. This is all before the temple is destroyed. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. When was the last time you were around a good pestilence? (laughs) I I don't know. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. I I hear these verses quoted uh, about, like, the end end a lot, right? Like, well, there's wars and there's earthquakes and, like, Jesus is going to come back any moment. And, like, yeah, the church has been saying Jesus is going to come back any moment since he, like, left. Okay? So, yeah. Duh. Right? Um, But these verses are not about the end end. They're about uh, what happens in the first century. They're about what happens... Uh, before the temple is destroyed. And so Jesus then describes what goes on in the book of Acts, actually. He says, um, look, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be delivered up to the authorities. And you're going to have to answer to them. And so this is what he says in that context. Uh, verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. It'll sound familiar to the book of Acts and the story of the church. This is exactly what happens. Uh, this will be your hour to bear witness, to to share what you've seen and heard in me. Right? That's, that's what you're going to do. And uh, settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Uh, this is the imagery that goes all the way back to Exodus, right? Where... Moses is about to stand before Pharaoh and, and be the agent through whom God delivers and saves his people. It involves him being a mouthpiece, and he's nervous about it. And God says to Moses, yeah, don't worry about what you're doing, right? I, can, I can supply everything you need for that moment. And so now the disciples are being invited into this new Exodus story where they too will participate in how God saves the world. And it will involve what they speak, how we live, and it is not to be engaged with anxiety. Jesus is saying, don't step into that with anxiety. Don't, you don't have to be anxious about this. I will supply what you need. Okay, so then he says, uh, you will be delivered up. Even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. This is going to cost. Right? This mission that I'm inviting you into, it will cost. Verse 17, you will be hated by all for my namesake. This is this not the story of Acts? Right? But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And so what Jesus is describing is the story of the church. And one of the things that's so important for us to see in this context is that the native soil for the church is persecution, that the the natural context for the mission of God moving out in the world is, it's a hardship. It's not comfort. It's persecution, not power. And so when the church finds itself on the margins, this is not a sign that we're where we shouldn't be, but actually a sign that we're, we're right in our sweet spot, right? Right where God moves the mission forward. And so, uh, he says, not a hair of your head will perish, which by the way, cannot mean in the context that you can't get hurt, Like that. He just said in verse 16, the verse right before it, that some of you are going to get put to death. So then he says, not a hair of your head is going to perish. Like what? Jesus, you're confusing us. Are you confused, Jesus? See, what he's saying is essentially nothing can happen, right? Not even a a hair on your head can be uh, um, hurt apart from the will of God, right? Like God, all things that happen to you are under God's purview. Nothing happens apart from his purview and his will and his purpose. And so this persecution isn't actually Contrary to God's plan, it is a part of God's plan. And in the context of the resurrection, you might even be able to discern the fact that uh, even death is like no more uh, or no worse, really, than losing a hair on your head in light of the resurrection. And so he says, persist and endure because you share in the mission of the Son. He says, by endurance, you you will gain your lives. And the word for life here is is where we get the word psyche, right? It's it's, you will gain yourself, in other words. Uh, And we gain a self through endurance. This is what's so interesting about what Jesus is saying. He says, look, if you're constantly looking to the comfort of your circumstances to define who you are, you're never going to have a self. It's always going to be shifting. But he says, if you persist in the way... In, in my way, if you endure in my way, you'll find that you actually have a self that I give you. Right? And you will know yourself in Christ as you endure in Christ. Verse 20, it says, but when you see Jerusalem, so now he's, he's, he's approaching the destruction of the temple. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and those who are inside the city depart, and let uh, not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. And the prophets have predicted the end of Jerusalem, that it will face, uh, it will answer for its idolatry and its rebellion. And so, Alas, he says, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. In other words, like, this is, this is not a good time to be in the city, folks. All right. um, for there will be great distress upon the earth and the wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be held captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time the Gentile, of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Whoa, all right. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, when Roman armies come closing in on the city, like, that's, that's when this is going to happen. That thing I talked about with the stones coming apart, yeah, that's when you're surrounded by uh, the armies, right? And this will happen in A.D. 70. So Jesus is saying this in the 30s, and so within 40 years, this actually takes place when General Titus rolls up with the Roman army uh, to put down the Jewish rebellion, and he just absolutely decimates Jerusalem. He absolutely destroys the temple. It's a horrible scene. But in a sense, this is the judgment Israel gets for making its bed with Caesar, right? Remember when Jesus is on trial and and they say, uh, Pilate says, this is your king. And they go, we don't have any king but Caesar. What they're saying is we reject Jesus as our king and our Messiah. We'll we'll answer to Caesar, thank you very much. It's like a terribly idolatrous thing for them to say. And so when they rebel, they get what they've asked for, right? When they rebel against Caesar, they get Caesar's wrath. It's fascinating logic to this whole thing. And so Jesus continues to describe a dynamic of judgment. So Jerusalem is judged on one hand for its rejection of the Messiah, its crucifixion of the Messiah, and then he zooms out. And says there's a greater dynamic of judgment. Look at verse 25 with me. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. This is apocalyptic language to describe a cosmic level crisis, okay? He's borrowing the language of the prophets that in Isaiah describes the end of Babylon, where that is the kind of quintessential city that is uh, representative of a world in rebellion against God, right? perpetuating its injustice and its violence. And and so he says, he uses all these, lang- all these words and images from the prophets to describe a coming time of judgment. For people, he says, verse 26, fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Now we're talking about something that is worldwide, not just Jerusalem, I think. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is imagery from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Now, when these things begin to take place, he says, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Okay, so what is Jesus saying? He's describing the judgment on the temple, on Jerusalem, and I think this is my take. There are some who would read the entire chapter as AD 70 language about the temple. There are some who, I think, mistakenly read it as all future. I think he's talking about both AD 70 and uh, ultimate future. Here is why I think he's talking about the the return of Jesus. He talks about this coming on the whole world, and then he talks about the day of your redemption drawing near, And so when he says your redemption is drawing near, there is language in the New Testament that talks about this idea of redemption. God setting you right, setting things right, buying back, purchasing back what was lost in a sense, right? And so he says in Romans 8, Paul does, he says, uh, not only is the creation groaning, waiting, right, for redemption, but he says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, God's alive in us through his Spirit, We groan inwardly. Things aren't the way they're meant to be. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's a future tense. Redemption is not all yet. It's now and not yet. And so he's saying we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. As far as I know, we still have sickness and death. And our bodies aren't redeemed. And so we wait for that redemption. And it's a future picture. In Ephesians 4.30, he describes the Holy Spirit who's a seal or a deposit, a down payment, if you will, who seals us for the day of redemption, future tense. And so when Jesus is talking about our redemption drawing near, he's actually talking about the coming day when he sets all things right. I think it's fascinating that in light of his coming and judgment, Jesus says what our posture is supposed to be. He doesn't say, like, hide under a table, like, right? Like, that's what I would think, right? Judgment's coming, like, put on, find a helmet or something, right? I mean, in God's judgment, that helmet's going to be wearing you for protection. But um, I still think, like, that would be my gut reaction. Like, holy cow, I'm going to go hide. But Jesus is saying, no, no. When the Son of Man comes, straighten your heads, right? Perk up. Your redemption's drawing near. And here's why I think we can look forward to this day with joy and not fear. It's simply because He's already borne our judgment. Right? If Christ is uh, if you have trusted Christ, right? If you've received Him as King, He says, Look, then straighten up, perk up, look joyfully for that day, because I've already taken your judgment. That's what I've done in the cross. And so when I come, it's to set things right. It is to expect your redemption in full. And so the posture of a sinner may be to look for a helmet. He says the posture of those who are redeemed, straighten up, look forward to it with joy. And throughout this whole section, he uses this imagery that the prophets use to describe the day of the Lord. That is, this day of judgment and salvation, always packaged in two. And he talks about it like it's here now and it's not yet. Like what's happening to Jerusalem is just a preview of what will happen for all the nations. right? And so there's salvation offered and there's judgment too. And, and I think we look forward to the judgment aspect when we actually grasp how broken and how unjust our world really is, right? It's actually no hope to you at all if we expect no judgment. It's, it's no hope to you. If, if God just comes back and goes, we, we, we cool, right? Like, uh, no, we're not cool. We're not cool with so much that has happened, is happening, and we know will continue to happen until he comes, We're not cool with it because it's violating and it's wrong and it's unjust and we can name those all around. The reason for lament and he says there will be a day. I'll come back and I'll set that right. Then he zooms back out. Look at verse 29 with me. He tells him a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also... When you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So what's this imagery about a fig tree? What is going on here? I think it's to point out that there has been a significant change of season for our world. That the when the fig leaf bears a... What fig tree bears a leaf, right? It's saying summer's around the corner. It's, it's right around the corner. And I think what is happening here, Jesus is saying when these things take place, right, know that the kingdom's drawing near. What are these things? It's the same phrase he used at the beginning when he talked about these things related to the temple. So when you see that temple destroyed, it's that vindication that Jesus was the true Messiah, right? And this is the judgment on the generation that rejected him. And when you see these things, know that Christ, the crucified, risen, ascended Christ, is the reigning and ruling king. And his kingdom, his reign, his rule has come near into our world, into our lives. I think the ultimate first leaf of the fig tree, in terms of the symbolism, would be the resurrection. That when Christ is risen, Paul talks about him as the first fruits of what's to come. What we see is Christ alive alive. Right, shows us that what summer will look like. Summer is coming. Right? We'll come back to that in a minute. So where where does all this lead? How does this apply to our lives? Jesus is going to tell us. Right. Uh, what do we do in light of this kingdom expectation that the judgment of Jerusalem has come and is coming, and there will be a coming day when the Son of Man returns with his cloud? Okay. Well, verse thirty four. Watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. And every day Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged in the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. I find it interesting that in light of this whole conversation, there's a long talk about like some pretty tragic things and the end judgment of humanity. Jesus says, So be aware of yourself, like keep watch, stay alert. Right? He doesn't say like buy all the food you can and hide it in a bunker. Right? He doesn't say go um, scare everyone into a decision for me. Right? Like that's not actually his application. His application is, so watch yourself. Pay attention. Don't just fall prey to life as normal and fall into this kind of drunken state, right? But be very alert, be very sober in how you're thinking about your life and the world. In other words, be God-aware, self-aware, and others-aware around you. Know what's happening spiritually. Be attentive all right, now that is a lot of text and a lot of explanation, and we haven't even scratched the surface. You could probably do a PhD on, like, these verses and still not even really exhaust it. But what in the world does this mean for us? Like, we've gone through this text, and what, what about this conversation between Jesus and his disciples is actually good news for the whole world? That's the question I feel like we have to a- answer this, this morning. How is this good news for the whole world? I want to point out three things. So if you're a note taker, this is your moment. Okay. You can shine. Okay. Um, it's true of my wife. She has this journal and it's pristine. And whenever there's not an organized flow to a sermon, she's like, this is the worst. Right? Um, so she, anyway, she's trained me. Here's three points. The first is this. Here's why the destruction of the temple is good news for you. And good news for the world. It's this. That the temple as a place has actually been replaced by the temple in a person. Okay? The temple as a place has been utterly and completely replaced by the temple in a person. Here's what I mean. Just like the obsolete architectural model, it <laughs> go in the trash, right? Because the reality had come. So the temple in Jerusalem could be scrapped. Because the reality had come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, okay? And so throughout the Bible story, beginning in Genesis, God makes earth to be wed to heaven, right? That the the point of all of the cosmos was to be the temple of the living God. He even set up an image of himself in the temple, humans, right? And we're meant to participate in his story and partner with him, In his rule. And when we decided as a race to define good and evil for ourselves and independent from him, to stiff harm him in distrust and rebellion, if you will, a a rift has occurred between heaven and earth. Where God's space, the space where his will is done and his rule is experienced, and our space where brokenness and darkness pervade, Right? Heaven and earth were torn asunder through sin. And so the point of temples throughout the bi- biblical story is to rejoin heaven and earth. Right? It is a, the tabernacle in the Exodus, uh, the Torah story, the uh, temple throughout the, the the story of the history and prophets, and Jesus himself come as a way of bringing God's presence, a way in which heaven and earth can retouch, right? And the, the point of the temple was to come to God's healing and cleansing and restoring presence. And the, the way of repairing what we had broken through sin was offered at the temple. It was a way of offering a sacrifice, right? To, to allow death to come to an animal, right? Instead of ourselves, right? and for our defilement to go to a goat that would go outside the camp, right? This picture of our sin being cleansed and removed from us for fellowship with the living God. And what happens in Jesus of Nazareth is that he comes, God comes in the flesh, and that heaven and earth are permanently fused in his person, in his nature, that humanity... He's restored to God in his very identity. And so heaven and earth meet in Jesus. And he restores us and cleanses us. He offers the final and full sacrifice. You read the epistle to the Hebrews, no need for sacrifice anymore. Thus, no need for a temple because the true temple has arrived in Jesus. And here's why this is good news for you. If you were to go to the temple as a Jew, first of all, you couldn't go because you're not a Jew, so y'all would be excluded because you're Gentiles, right? No goyim, so we're we're out, right? Who gets to go experience the presence of God? Only the covenant people and only with sacrifice. In other words, you've got a lot to do in order to restore that relationship. You've got a list of some things you've got to take care of and get in store and get in, or get in line. The good news here for us, friends, is that Jesus being the temple, the true temple, means this, that wherever you're at today, whatever it is that you're looking for in connection to God, you actually don't have anything to do. You just don't have to do anything. Not a thing. It's just not about you. It's not about what you do. And if it's not about what you do, then let me tell you, it is about who you receive, It is about who you trust, who you allow to actually be God in your life. And so it's a passive kind of thing, right? Where we say, God, I I recognize who you are and your place. And it will change everything that you do because it will be transforming to allow him to be who he is in your life, to take away the anxiety that sin produces, to take away the anxiety that leading your own life produces. And so you enter this journey of faith with this person who actually is the temple to you. And I, I would say that in our culture, people are less and less inclined to find a relational connection with God as just search for something transcendent, a craving for something bigger than themselves, which is what the temple always was. It was this transcendent moment where you came before an almighty other God. And so we encounter the transcendence of the living God not in the next great food experience you have, not in the next great show you get to go to, not even in a person you get to experience the exhilarating uh, feeling of love towards. But we find True transcendence in the one who has transcended heaven and earth to come to you and restore you. So it's good news that the temple is destroyed because there is a true temple and he moves towards you and there's nothing you can do to connect with the transcendent living God, except to receive him. The second thing that this is this is absolutely critical for us, this is why it's good news that the temple as a physical thing is gone, and it's this, that the, the true temple is embodied as a communion of people, the local church. And so if Jesus is the true temple and you and I are united to him, one with him, the imagery of the Bible is that Uh, he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And the picture of marriage is that the bride and groom come together are one. And see, he says, you are one with me. When the father looks at you, he sees you united to me. That's why he can say in John 17 that the father loves you and I with the same love that he has for the son, because we're in the son. And so what I would say to you is this, that as people united to Christ, we are the temple right? That the fullness of Christ is experienced in his body, his people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God, God's spirit dwells in you? That is you plural, you all. The image is that together, God's ongoing presence, right, fills up those who are dwelt and dwelt by him through his spirit. And that's really abstract, so let me put it this way. How is it that you actually feel that God loves you? Like, in your life, how do you actually see God's with you? Most often and most tangibly. Is it, is, is it not in each other? Right? We experience the fullness of Christ in community. Is it not when someone just offers you a hug after you've been vulnerable, who offers forgiveness when you've confessed? who sits with you when you've felt deeply alone, right? is it not in the fullness of the body of Christ that we experience God in his redeeming reality in our life? So we're the temple, which is amazing. And I, I would say this to you. It elevates what it means to participate in the local church. It kind of changes the game from like, I go to church to like, we are the church, Right? You don't go to church. You don't go to temple. We are the temple. And, and so that actually, it changes the game. It elevates your being a part of the body of Christ in this, this way. It's that God has decreed that you are an essential part of this. I, I, I don't know any other way to say it. Not, that, not by virtue of necessity. He doesn't actually need any of us. But he makes you essential because he delights to. He just wants you to. He just wants other people to experience the fullness of him through you. I don't know why. It's just just his way. And so I would say to you, you cannot do temple alone in isolation. It just doesn't work. So we have a community wall that you walk past as you come in here and out of here. Don't, Don't leave without considering being a part of one of our communities here, to genuinely be known and know others. And and let me land this with the third thing that is important for us to draw from this passage. This is why it's good news, okay, for us to be uh, people on the other side of the destruction of the temple. It's that there's a hope here, that the whole earth awaits a time when it will be fully and finally templed. Here's what I mean. When, When Jesus comes... He says, uh, you'll see the Son of Man coming with a cloud. That's actually from Daniel 7. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And that's the text that Jesus is alluding to. With the clouds of heaven, there came a son, one like a Son of Man. I don't know what you think of when you think of clouds, but I bet you you're not thinking about it in Old Testament terms. You're thinking about it like a Pacific northwester, Right? <laughs> Which is like, we all know clouds. We know them real well, right? And so we think weather patterns. Jesus is, let me, let me just tell you that Jesus is not talking weather pattern at all. What, what, what's the point of a cloud in the Bible? You think through it. In the Exodus, the people are led by a cloud, right? Fire at night, cloud by day. At the mountain, when God says, let's covenant together. What's on top of the mountain? Cloud. When uh, Solomon prays and blesses the temple, what fills it? Cloud. When Jesus is transfigured and he's got that like blow, glowing thing going on, right? At the top of the mountain with Peter and John, James, what shows up? Cloud. The cloud, biblically, is the glory, the beauty, the permanence, the restoring, healing cleansing, con- injustice-confronting presence of God. And so Jesus doesn't just come with a weather pattern. He comes with the glory, right? And there's a day when the fullness of God's glory fills all in such a way that everything is set right. There's this great line by Lewis, C.S. Lewis where he says, um, what we have been told is how we men can be drawn into Christ. We can become a part of that wonderful present with uh, which the young prince of the universe wants to offer his father, that present which is himself and therefore us in him, that's union with Christ. And it, it is the only thing we were made for. And there are some strange, exciting hints in the Bible that when we are drawn in, a great many other things in nature will begin to go right. The bad dream will be over. It will be morning. And so when you go back to that imagery of the fig tree bearing a leaf, it is a reminder that summer's around the corner. The glorious summer, the glorious brightness and restoring presence of God filling the earth, is just around the corner. Christ is risen. All things being made right, it's just around the corner. Guys, we had a great, beautiful, sunny week. We can endure a little bit more rain because we know summer's coming, right? I mean, perfect timing here. Thank you. Right. So what that does for us is it doesn't cause disengagement from the world. It causes endurance in us, right? You can handle the last bit of spring in the Northwest because you know what's coming. You can handle the offenses. You can handle the hurts. You, you can handle the, the pain of generosity. You, you can handle the stretch of diversity. You can actually lean into a life of holiness because you're going to become accustomed to it one way or the other. Right. Might as well get accustomed to it now instead of experience culture shock in heaven. Right. You can live into the story of the coming summer. We can live into that and be foretaste of that reality of the kingdom in our broken, hurting world because we know it's coming. Let's pray.